This is Philosophy Bites with me, David Edmonds. And me, Nigel Warburton. Philosophy Bites is unfunded. Please help us to keep it going by subscribing or donating at www.philosophybites.com or you can become a patron at Patreon. If everything I do is the result of earlier causes, is free will an illusion? Determinists believe that all our action can be given a causal explanation. A murderer's decision to wield an axe could be explained by a whole series of causes and effects, including genetic causes, environmental causes, neurons firing in the killer's brain, and so on. For a determinist, there doesn't seem to be any room for real choice. So, if I murder someone, on that view, how could I be held morally responsible? How could anyone justify punishing anyone else? Greg Caruso discusses this thorny problem. Greg Caruso, welcome to Philosophy Bites. Thank you very much for having me, David. The topic we're discussing today is free will and punishment. Can you try and encapsulate what the problem is? Yes. First, let me say that I define free will in terms of moral responsibility. So for me, what's really at stake, the central philosophical and practical debate is about whether we have a certain kind of control and action that would be required for basic desert moral responsibility. So this is the kind of moral responsibility that would be required to hold people truly deserving of praise and blame, punishment and reward. So traditionally, the problem was framed in terms of determinism which was the thesis that every event in action, including human action, was causally determined by antecedent conditions in combination with the laws of nature. The general problem is, can agents be morally responsible in this basic desert sense? Can they have the kind of control needed for this praise and blame, punishment and reward in a deterministic world? And if they don't have that kind of freedom, it seems odd that one would punish them. That's right. So... The kind of free will, again, that I'm talking about is a kind that would justify certain types of attitudes, judgments, and treatments. And that goes from what philosophers call the reactive attitudes, resentment, indignation, blame, moral anger, all the way up to retributive punishment. So if agents lack this type of free will and moral responsibility, then they wouldn't be just targets for punishment in a retributist sense, a sense that is backwards looking and saying that agents justly deserve to be punished for the moral wrongs they've done. Now, most of us think we've got free will. We think we can choose what we do. Why would anybody believe that we don't? The historical debate had surrounded the problem in terms of determinism. So if every agent is causally determined by antecedent conditions to do what they do, a concern was, are agents free in such a context? Hard determinists, they believe determinism was true, and incompatible with free will, either because it's incompatible with the ability to do otherwise, which is sometimes called leeway incompatibilism, or incompatible with the agent being the ultimate source of their actions, which is sometimes called source incompatibilism. Most free will skeptics today, that is most philosophers who deny free will, are generally agnostic about the truth of determinism. And this is largely because the standard interpretation of quantum mechanics has thrown into doubt this kind of universal determinism that every event is causally determined. So skeptics like myself generally hold the view that we lack free will either way. That is, if determinism is true, we lack free will because, again, it's incompatible or inconsistent with the ability to do otherwise and agents being the ultimate source of their actions. But if incompatibilism is the case, I claim that doesn't help preserve free will any more than determinism does. That seems a bit strange because you would have thought that if something is indeterminist, i.e. if it doesn't have a cause 
that leaves room for free will. Right. So on my view, it wouldn't be the case. And here's why. Because there's generally two types of indeterminists or what are called libertarian accounts of free will. There's what are called event indeterminists who think that it's just a matter of events being causally undetermined. My criticism against those kind of views would be that they can't preserve the kind of control and action that would be needed to ground basic desert moral responsibility. Ultimately, the agent would not be any more in control of these indeterminate events than if they were deterministic. They're outside the control of agents just as much as determined actions would be outside the control of agents. So what ultimately happens would be a matter of arbitrary consequences, sort of a roll of the dice, if you will. Agent causal accounts of libertarianism are a little bit better because they give the agent the ability to cause actions themselves. But the problem for those type of accounts, on my view, is that they don't fit with our best understanding of the scientific world. They posit sui generis kind of agents who are capable of causing actions in relatively mysterious ways that are hard to fit into a naturalistic scientific view of the world. You have to buy a great deal of metaphysical baggage to make sense of agent causation. So I reject both versions that would get you to free will. So can you give an example? So how would the two different accounts explain my shoplifting, for example? On one very popular libertarian view, the idea is basically that, oh, maybe I both have a desire to shoplift and a desire not to shoplift. Maybe I have a desire to get this item for myself of selfish reasons, and the other is to maintain my moral fiber. But what ultimately wins out in that case on the indeterminist account would ultimately be some indeterminate event in your brain, maybe a percolating up of indeterminism to the level of neural networks. But what ultimately is the outcome is no more in control of the agent. So whichever action they end up doing is not ultimately within their control in a way that would ground basic desert. Let's assume that the free will skeptics are right that there is no free will in the way it's traditionally conceived. Does that mean that punishment can never be justified? Great question. So there's always been a problem for free will skeptics, and the concern is that they would have a hard time doing so, in part because they reject one of the main justifications for punishment, which is called retributivism. Retributivism is the idea that the agent deserves to be punished for the moral wrongs they've done. It's sort of a payback in a way. Essentially, you ask, we have to justify why we're harming somebody. Whenever we cause harm in an individual, there has to be some moral justification. And the retributivist model generally says they deserve to suffer in part for the moral wrongs they've done. But since a free will skeptic rejects that kind of justification, they have to offer an alternative. And what might that alternative be? Well, one alternative is a forward-looking consequentialist type consideration. It looks at deterrence. So again, if I were to ask what justifies punishment, one answer might be because the agent deserves it. That's retributivism, backward looking. Another answer you can give is that it will prevent crime. Either it will prevent the individual from committing another crime themselves in the future, or it will deter others from committing similar crimes in the future. And that would be a consequentialist forward looking justification for punishment. So that sounds very plausible. And we don't have to blame the person we're punishing. We just say we're punishing a person because we want to deter others or because that person is a danger to society. What could be wrong with that? Well, some people raise moral objections to this account. One of them would be perhaps that it could justify punishing innocent people. So, for example, you know, if there was a crime spree 
and we couldn't convict or find the guilty party, a utilitarian or consequentialist justification might say that to prevent others from getting the idea of committing crimes themselves, maybe we should hold some innocent individual accountable for this. And other problems might arise where we dole out very extreme forms of punishment if they were to be effective deterrents. So some people would feel perhaps that that is unjustified because it goes beyond what would be proportionate punishment for the agent. So under a deterrence model, one could justify electrocuting somebody, torturing somebody, if it was shown to be an effective deterrent to others. That is the concern. I mean, there are some consequentialists who think they could get around such objections, but I do believe there's enough concern for the consequentialist model that I would hope for an alternative. And you have an alternative. I do. My account I call the public health quarantine model, and it's basically an incapacitation account based on the right of self-defense analogous with the justification for quarantine. If you were to think about quarantine, someone gets on a plane, contracts, say, Ebola, some communicable disease. They've done nothing that deserves punishment. They've done nothing that deserves that has their liberty limited or removed. However, for the safety of society, we generally think that it's acceptable to quarantine that individual to protect the larger society. I would offer a similar justification for incapacitating dangerous criminals based on the right of self-defense and the protection of harm to others. So the idea would be that you don't ultimately need the idea of blame or just deserts to ground punishment in this case, just like you can quarantine an individual who doesn't justly deserve to be punished. And it's based, again, in the idea of self-defense and defense of harm to others. Wouldn't that suffer from the same flaw as the deterrence model? Couldn't you then justify locking somebody up indefinitely if they had Ebola and they were a threat to other people? Couldn't you justify extreme forms of punishment if that stopped a public health scare of some kind? Well, not on the model I adopt, because the model I adopt has a number of restrictions and constraints sort of built into it. So one of them would be that you have to adopt the least restrictive form of sanctions that are possible. So if you were to have a common cold, we're not going to justify quarantine, for example. Just like various types of criminal behavior might justify less restrictive measures, you might, for example, reconsider the kind of sentencing we now currently give for drug offenders or for lower-level crimes. We might even consider decriminalizing certain types of behaviors or looking for more appropriate forms of treatment and rehabilitation instead of incarceration. Another restriction on my model would be even when you're detaining these individuals, we have a moral duty to the well-being and rehabilitation of prisoners. So just like we would have a moral duty to treat those in quarantine for their diseases, we would have a moral duty to try to rehabilitate those that we incarcerate. And lastly, if we had to hold someone indefinitely, let's say because they couldn't be rehabilitated, my model would dictate that you have no justification for treating that person cruelly while detained, just like we wouldn't be justified in treating cruelly someone we hold in quarantine. I wonder if your model also has anything to say about distributive justice. I'm thinking about the way in the US and the UK at least, the statistics show that minorities are more than disproportionately part of the criminal justice system and that the police and the courts need to be aware of that and need to ensure that there isn't some kind of implicit bias going on. Absolutely. I mean, so I placed this quarantine analogy in a much broader justificatory framework taken from public health ethics. 
And when you think about public health ethics, one of the primary functions of a public health organization is prevention. So in the United States, you have the Food and Drug Administration, the EPA, the CDC. And the primary function of these organizations is to prevent foodborne illnesses, prevent pandemics from occurring, prevent environmental harms that might affect human health. In a certain sense, quarantine only comes into play when we fail in our primary function, right? We want to prevent these things from occurring in the first place. So my more holistic approach would be to address the systemic causes of crime, like wealth inequality, educational inequity, the kind of lack of opportunity that arises. And then there's a social justice component that gets to the heart of your question, which is just like in public health, racism, sexism, systemic inequality affects the health of children. You're seeing type 2 diabetes and obesity rates much higher in poorer communities and in minority communities. You would have to then, on my model, bring much closer criminal justice and distributive justice would be issues that need to be addressed simultaneously. Because as a free will skeptic, I think that, you know, the lottery of life is not always fair, right? The lottery of life doles out the cards. We don't earn whiteness or maleness or middle classness, right? But we know that those affect our opportunities, those affect our choices, those affect our actions. So we would have to ultimately address the causal roots of the criminal behavior in the first place, wealth inequality, racism, educational inequity, and deal both with social justice and criminal justice simultaneously on my model. And the nice thing about your model is it offers a whole rationale for the justification of punishment, which removes any sense of blame or praise. It's a holistic system to explain why incarceration and the criminal justice system is nonetheless necessary. Absolutely. And I think that that's an important contribution because I think it avoids some of the problems I mentioned earlier with the deterrence model. So, for example, you couldn't punish an innocent person on my account where you might be able to on a consequentialist view, because on my account, you are judging it based on the risk of the individual. And if the individual did not commit the crime, they pose no risk to society and it can never be justified. Just like it would be unjustified to quarantine an individual who was not a carrier of a disease and was known to be healthy. So you could do it without positing blame, and you could do it by avoiding some of the other moral objections that are raised to other non-retributive accounts that are out there. This analogy with public health and with quarantine is obviously very convincing, very compelling. Is anybody paying any attention in the public policy world? My hope is to influence public policy, of course, because if you think about the United States, we have about 5% of the world's population, yet we have 25% of the world's prisoners. It's the highest rate of incarceration known to civilization. We incarcerate more people than any other country in the world. On average, it's about 700 prisoners for every 100,000. You compare that to Norway and other Scandinavian countries, and it's about 70 people for every 100,000. So we incarcerate 10 times as many people. So we clearly have a problem. And it's not reducing recidivism. We have one of the highest rates of repeat crime in the world. So this harsh, punitive, excessively punitive type of punishment that we currently have in the United States isn't really getting the results we want, isn't really making us safer, and isn't preventing people really from committing crimes. So we really seriously need to rethink 
how we're currently doing it. My hope is that this model will gain some traction. And I've been trying to open up a chain of dialogue with judges, lawyers, neuroscientists, psychologists, to hope to bring some attention to this issue in criminal justice, and particularly to look for non-retributive alternatives. And there's plenty of good retributivists out there who think we need to deal with this mass incarceration problem. But I think that retributive impulse, unfortunately, still encourages a kind of notion of desert that ultimately could backfire and lead to these kind of harsh, excessively punitive systems. So my hope is that this model will gain some traction, and I'm going to try my best to get it out there so as to influence public policy. Greg Caruso, thank you very much indeed. Thank you for having me. For more Philosophy Bites, go to www.philosophybites.com. You can also find details there of Philosophy Bites books and how to support us.